0: can everyone hear me yes awesome welcome to today's session on the black tech ecosystem I'm very excited to be up here with our three fantastic panelists Um, before we get started I did just want to do a quick land acknowledgement so we acknowledge that we're on the occupied ancestral territory of the Tonkoa, the Lippin Apache, Karankoa, Comanche, and uh, Kowa we- Weiltikan people. We acknowledge this not only in thanks to indigenous communities who have held relationship with this land for generations, but also in recognition of the historical and ongoing legacy of colonialism. Additionally, we acknowledge this as a point of reflection for us all as we work towards building and scaling liberatory practices for all who continue to be affected by colonialism and imperialism. Thank you again for uh, coming to our fantastic session. I'm really excited to have these panelists up here. And before uh, we start talking and diving into the questions, would love to take this moment to have them introduce themselves. So Samir,
1: would you like to get started? Sure, sure. I appreciate it, Sonia. Um, Before I introduce myself, I'm just curious about who's in the room. So I'm going to do a quick set of questions to get an idea. Uh, Raise your hand if this applies to you. Uh, Startup founders? Awesome. OK. All right, all right. (laughs) Um, Operators, so you're working in the tech industry in some capacity? OK, OK. Investors? Okay, of course, got y'all down. Uh, students, <laughs> who are students? MBA, undergrad? Let's go, we got one. Right, High school here. student, shout out. Um, and anything else I missed there, in terms of the different audiences? Good.
2: Good. We got 100% humans here. Yeah, yeah. humans, uh,
1: no we no got bots. humans, all right, bet. We're all out. No bots, you know. um, awesome, awesome, thank y'all for, for humoring me. Um, Samer Youssef. Uh, I'm Samra Yusuf, Interim CEO of Black BC. We are the professional organization for Black Venture Investors, focused on making the venture ecosystem more diverse and inclusive, uh, with the underlying hypothesis that if you change who the check writers are, the networks we're coming from, the problems we think are significant enough to solve, you also change where the capital is flowing. So um, I'll dive deeper into Black VC, what we do as an organization and, and our goals, but honored and thank you to Sonia, Allison, and the Kapoor Center team for inviting us to join this conversation. Uh, I'm excited to dive in with you. all Thanks, Samar, thanks for
3: joining us. Thank you all for coming out today. I know there's, um, we're competing with happy hours and lots of fun events, but really appreciate your commitment to the topic. Um, I'm Allison Scott, I'm the CEO of the Kapor Foundation. We're based in Oakland, California. We're focused at the intersection of um, Racial justice and technology, um, and very committed to addressing biases and barriers across every stage of the pipeline from early K 12 computer science education all the way to uh, venture uh, and entrepreneurship. And thrilled to be here today.
2: All right, thank you, everybody. I'm Kenneth Scott he, Him. I'm the vice president of Bitwise Industries Oakland. Uh, Bitwise is founded in Fresno. We're about to celebrate 10 years of really being not only just a tech services company, but being a social impact company that is built around the premise that we have the ability in our community. We just need to provide opportunities for those folks to get access to jobs in the tech industry and access to jobs at Bitwise. So I have been working with these wonderful individuals for years since I was a K-12 instructor myself. And so I'm so excited to dig in and talk to you guys about this topic because it is near and dear to me.
0: Wonderful, and um, I am Sonia Koshi. I'm the Chief Research Officer at the Kapor Center. Um, so, just a little bit of the genesis of this uh, particular panel is that the Kapor Center had put out a Black Tech Ecosystem Report early in 2022, um, and then uh, probably end of 2022, beginning of 2023, Samir at Black BC um, and his team had put. Out a state of uh, Black Venture uh, Black Venture uh, report as well, and so this was just a timely um, opportunity for us to really look at what is the state of the Black tech ecosystem and the numbers, the data, and now it is time for solutions. What do we do in order to move the entire uh, ecosystem forward? And so with that, a uh, little bit of the agenda, we will do a little bit of a dive into the report. Both Allison and Samer will talk uh, about the numbers and their findings from the report, and then we will have some time for uh, conversation and discussion questions, and finally open it up to the audience for any questions from you all.
3: Um, so I will hand it to Allison. Thank you, Sonia. Um, <clears throat> so, definitely, just wanted to start the conversation with a little grounding in the current data um, on the state of the Black tech ecosystem, um, and really want to get to solutions. So, we will definitely have time for that at the at, in, in our panel conversations. So, when we look at um, early K-12 computer science education, despite um, decades of investment and um, commitment to this principle around expanding computer science education. Uh, We see that there are still significant disparities in access to computer science um, from K all the way through 12. Um, Black students are still um, significantly underrepresented, um, particularly in AP computer science courses. Um, Across the US, just 715 black girls participated in the APCSA course, which is one of the predictors of um, going on to major in computer science in higher education. Um, and I think the most recent data is like 50, around 53% of all high schools in uh, the country offer any sort of computer science education. If you're a black student, you're much less likely to attend a school that offers any computer science course at all. Um, <clears throat> when we looked at what was happening in the post-secondary space, um, we also saw that the percentage of black students earning computer science degrees has actually decreased since 2016. Um, which was a really troubling trend for us, um, and the increase on the one hand of, of CS majors, so there's obviously a huge demand um, and interest in majoring in computer science, um, but black students earning CS degrees has actually decreased by uh, 0.7 percentage points. I love that people appreciate the data. This is great. Um, And in the non-traditional pathways into tech jobs, uh, despite the promise of of alternative educational pathways, we see that racial disparities still exist in boot camps and apprenticeships. So um, there's a lot of of work still to be done there and really excited for the work that Bitwise is doing and and Kenan's leadership in this space. Um, This is really hard to read, so I'll just kind of walk you through it. And despite many, many, many years of um, conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion in the tech sector, we still see that uh, black talent is underrepresented across the entire tech workforce. Um, And the chart on the left um, shows some of the, the major companies, so Google, Facebook. Uh, or sorry meta LinkedIn Um, we've seen very little progress at all in black representation that's the red line that you can barely see but you can see that there's not a trend line of increasing at all Um, and the blue line at the top is uh, representation in the overall workforce so we're still significantly underrepresented um, amongst the the (coughs) largest sorry the largest tech companies and the last slide, as we think about um, entrepreneurship and venture capital, um, despite, uh, again, a lot of commitments that happened after the murder of George Floyd, we actually see that there's been a decrease in the amount of investment of uh, U.S. Venture, venture capital to uh, black entrepreneurs. So $215 billion invested overall in 2022, um, just $2.25 billion of that went to black entrepreneurs. Um, so... The overall sum of this is that, again, despite a lot of attention, a lot of um, commitments, we have seen very little progress, and that's why we wanted to talk so much talk today about um, uh, solutions and where, where we go from here. So I'm actually going to pass it to Samer to talk in a little bit more detail about the Black uh, venture space.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much, Allison, Uh, and and I want you to hold that uh, percentage of 1.2 percent just because as as we go through our next presentation as you'll see I think a lot of the cause that leads to that effect also in representation and venture as well. Um, And as I dive into this report, I also want to acknowledge something that's obviously been very pressing over the past two uh, last week. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was one of the core sponsors that helped us pull together this report and Silicon Valley Bank across the industry, across organizations focused on diversity, equity, inclusion within venture and startups has been a pillar. And so outside of what's happening just from a banking perspective, I also just want to acknowledge a lot of the the challenges that that creates and empathy toward those that may have worked there, that have been supported by the organization because it is a hit. Uh, It is a hit on the broader ecosystem. And luckily those that have, we've all been made whole Uh, that do bank with SVB in terms of our deposits, that doesn't necessarily then factor in the broader impact that this has. So I just want to quickly acknowledge that. Um, But but going back to what we mentioned, um, but Allison mentioned in terms of the the funding to black entrepreneurs, black VC, the core, the origin behind the organization was, as I mentioned earlier, you know, representation of of black venture investors and venture broadly is very limited. So across the board, there's about 4% of venture investors identify as black but about 3% of uh, partners uh, in the industry also identify as black. When you look at AUM, that number skews heavily, and the, the fractions of a percent are, are managed by black individuals. And, and what does that mean in terms of uh, the broader impact? It leads to that 1.2% uh, statistics. So we as Black VC, we're focused on three goals. Uh, Increase the number of black venture investors at all levels, from analysts to the GPs and limited partners, uh, two advance the careers those currently in venture to become check writers, increasing the assets under managed within the community, and then three stuff like this: um, providing relevant accurate data on the black venture and black tech ecosystem with partners such as Kapoor and others, so that we can actually ch- try and execute on policies, programs strategies that hopefully actually meaningfully move the needle um, on the venture and the startup side so for this report, um, this is actually our second inaugural report. Uh, the first one, we really focused more on the partners and senior partners level, but for this report, we wanted to take a much more holistic view of the industry and specifically looking at also more junior investors because something that we've seen is also where the junior investors are actually kind of leading the charge in terms of more diversity within the educational and geographic backgrounds they're coming from, as well as they're much as a much higher um, gender representation uh, of women in the junior class and in the senior, and that's something that's exciting in terms of seeing a stronger junior bench growing, but also it's uh, disconcerting, and as you'll see in the next slide, uh, the limited percentage of, of women at the partnership level. So for this slide, I just wanted to quickly highlight that like venture for all of y'all who are, are familiar with the industry is heavily homogeneous, not just that it's predominantly white and male, but also heavily concentrated in the Ivy Leagues and Stanford. And something that we saw that was really exciting for the junior bench is that um, only a quarter of junior investors are coming from the Ivies in Stanford coming to, compared to about 45% of partners um, coming from uh, the Ivy League in Stanford, which is indicative of us as more people coming from HBCUs, more people coming from state schools. This is a opportunity where we're seeing much more access that traditionally wasn't there, which is exciting for us and something that we want to also get behind. Uh, something we also wanted to call out was that Across the board, from analyst to GP, we're also seeing about 40% of uh, Black women that are broken into the industry are coming from those backgrounds. Um, there's obviously a lot of uh, potential reasons why. A hypothesis we have is the the one that I'm sure a lot of people in this room understand is you got to be twice as good, and you got to vet twice as well. And so you got to have those check marks on your resume to be able to break in. So, um, although we're seeing progress at the junior levels, we're also want to continue to push to ensure that this talent remains within the industry, the scale within the industry, gets into these decision-making roles and ultimately has influence on where the money is going. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know we're seeing some uh, gender parity start to climb in terms of 35% of uh, all black investors are women. However, um, at the partnership level, so those that have the decision-making opportunity and oftentimes are those that receive the wealth, um, potential wealth outcomes from, from great investments, uh, only 16.7% are, are black women. So something that we are focused on, obviously we're, we're in women's, women's History Month now, but like across the board, one thing that we're intentionally trying to focus on at Black BC is that we're ensuring gender parity across all of our programs, all the resources that we're providing, uh, all the networks that we're accessing, et cetera. Uh, additionally, and this is kind of ties back to our previous uh, Uh, State of Black Venture Report that we published in 2022, uh, we found that black fund managers across the board, um, there's been a large increase in new black fund managers coming to market in the last three years. Something that we saw actually in the last year, so 2022, we saw about 26% of new black fund managers coming to market and raising funds, which as many of you in this room know, this isn't the best market to be raising a new venture fund. So although it's exciting, it it's also going to be a much tougher opportunity for folks to raise. And we're seeing that a lot of the fund managers on average are actually raising 35% funds that are smaller than their target. So if they were targeting a, say, $100 million fund, they're raising about $65 million. Most of them, however, are raising funds that are $50 million or less. which means for the founders and investors in the room these are predominantly pre-seed to seed stage funds uh, which is great but creates this additional cliff at the series a and beyond for um, black and diverse entrepreneurs Uh, so it's something that we're excited about we're getting really behind black VC is launching a initiative called fund forward which is specifically focused on uh, mobilizing more lp capital to to black uh, and diverse gps but it's it's a bittersweet note in that we're seeing momentum in the industry. However, if a lot of funds aren't actually able to reach their target size, that affects their strategy, that affects their ability to their management fees to build out staff. That ultimately affects their ability to be successful. And a series of of unsuccessful black-led funds will have an asymmetrically negative impact on the venture ecosystem uh, writ large. Um, on the flip side, because I, I know it's a little bit dark, those last two slides, let's talk a little bit about the positive. What is the impact of black uh, investors um, at large? So we see overwhelmingly uh, the majority of black investors have some level of diverse mandate within their funds, right? Women, BIPOC, veterans, et cetera. And so we see an overwhelming investment into women founders from black found, uh, fund managers. We're also seeing a vast majority of those fund managers also investing into Hispanic and black entrepreneurs. And you know we have we BlackVC, we kind of talk about it consistently that like our expectation isn't that every black investor is investing into black founders specifically. Our goal is just we're creating a next tranche of just incredible industry leading investors who are overwhelmingly also backing black entrepreneurs and diverse entrepreneurs because that is where the alpha is. Um, and so that's proven now by the data. Additional interesting data points as we find from junior investors, three quarters of them are being in, mentored by senior black investors. Uh, we're also finding that black-led funds are also 4x more likely to back black entrepreneurs. So we're seeing a lot of this data across the ecosystem. However, you know, the, the, there's still challenges in again on those fund managers raising capital. But um, I think that there's these are positive indications that there's a um, a upside to backing black, right? Um, outside of the, just the financial upside. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, those are some of the statistics in terms of three quarters of, of junior talent being backed uh, by black uh, mentors. Also, just across the board, black investors writ large are more likely to, 3x more likely to back uh, black founders. And so this is a, although we're still a smaller sub-segment of the ecosystem, we're punching much uh, above our weight class in terms of impact. And I will hand it over. Yes. No, you're good. You're good.
3: Just keep
4: it on that you
1: slide. Uh, we'll keep it you. on that slide for a second.
0: Yeah. Cool. Great. Um, so I'm going to kick this discussion off with a question for Allison. So um, the early end of the spectrum around um, K-12 education. So we've seen a shift in the landscape over the last year since since we even put out this report with um, increasingly polarized Times, particularly in public education. Um, so, states are banning classroom resources lined with critical race theory, despite the fact that it's not at all aligned. But organizations are also cutting back on DEI programs, um, public org- institutions, um, and then there's little pr- progress that's been made to address the systemic systemic inequalities. So how have you seen this impacting CS classrooms specifically, um, and how does this impact in improving representation, if at all?
3: It's a great question to start us off with. Um, so just a, a quick overview about my take on where we've been in the computer science education space and, and where I think we need to go. So. Um, as I mentioned before, probably for the past decade, um, there's been a lot of work and a lot of effort across almost every state and um, across the nation around broadening participation. So increasing access to computer science courses, um, you know, state-level policy change to um, increase the number of students who are able to take computer science courses, although, again, we still only have 53% of high schools offering computer science courses at all. The major challenge that we've seen in those 10 years is that we haven't made any progress on closing racial equity gaps. Um, so black students, again, as I mentioned, are still less likely to have um, any opportunities to take computer science early in um, in their K-12 education or all the way through high school. Um, and, um, and this significantly impacts just exposure um, to, uh, to computing. Um, Another major issue that I think we're seeing right now with the increase, increasing polarization um, is kind of a backlash and a retrenchment from the idea that we should be trying to close racial equity gaps. Um, so if we think about like what's the parallel between book bans and computer science education, we have folks, um, colleagues who are working in... Um, in states like Georgia and Texas that are now um, no longer able to use the words equity or have equity written into policies. Um, We have made a big push over the last uh, two years around culturally responsive and inclusive um, computer science education. Our argument is we can't just offer the content. We have to also provide context to that content. So um, things like um, ensuring that students have the opportunity to critique um, t- the technologies that are being created. Um, and so we've actually seen in the space backlash to culturally responsive computer science education. Um, and so I think it's a really important time on the solution side. Um, we had some meetings here while we were here in Austin, actually, I think it's an important time for us to double down and say like, we're we're not willing to go back. We haven't made any progress. And so it, it's really time for us to double down on like, what does equity in computer science mean and how do, how can we achieve that?
0: And a follow-up to that is we've seen no issues with tech being able to lobby for their self-interest in a lot of policies. So does tech play a role in what is happening in public education right now?
3: Gosh, Sonia. (laughs) Um, Yes, a really good one. Um, so I could spend a lot of time talking about this. I think there's um, some some major challenges with what we've seen in terms of who's supporting computer science education. Um, and what, on the one hand, they're um, spending you know millions and millions of dollars to support the expansion of computer science education. On the other hand, they're very willing to um, be in bed with politicians who are working against the interests of Black and Brown students. So that is a challenge. I think that we have to call out and that we have to be aware of. Um, I continue to um, argue that we need to push for like structural change so that we're not relying on computer science education, just being funded by uh, corporate corporations. Um, And so that really means that we have to consider um, broader scale policy change. So I'm excited that we're able to do some of that work, but I'd love others' thoughts as well. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, for me, (laughs) as someone who worked with both of you in the K-12 sphere Culturally relevant pedagogy or the ability to make computer science relevant beyond the code is essential to providing students with a level playing field, right? They have to understand that what they know intrinsically, what they brought to the classroom from their journey to the classroom, their journey home, everything that's happening at home, everything they see is valuable in the lesson. It's applicable to the computer science, to the the computational thinking. Right. I, I remember early in my career trying to explain, and I, just so those know, I, I taught computer science and engineering in West Oakland. So this is the hood. This is like where I felt most comfortable being able to not only show another face for what an engineer, I'm an engineer previously, what an engineer could look like, but also what we already have intrinsically, naturally, the gifts we bring to the classroom that can be applied to computer science and computational thinking. And so I remember early on explaining to parents, because, you know, you got a parent. And, and, and for those who haven't read Ruah Benjamin's Viral Justice, check it out, because black parents come to school ready to fight.
5: <laughs>
2: I just want to make that very clear. White parents don't have the same experience. Black parents come to school with multi-generational trauma from the educational system and they are ready to get at your neck about why is my student learning this and that can all all the way extend to engineering. So I had teachers come in and so I learned right away, I have to explain why I'm teaching engineering and how they already actually do it in their practice, their design thinking, shout out to my D school people. So like, I would always say, hey, you've got three kids, they go to three different schools, all three of those schools start at a different time. How the hell do you do that? And they would, you know, they would give me all their different ways in which they solve that problem. And I say, well, those are algorithms. You're actually working with pattern recognition. You're looking at traffic flows and deciding I'm going to go to this school based on the data that I know says if I try to go all the way to the west from the east, it's going to take me too long to come back. So I would always explain to folks how what we already have intrinsically, the knowledge that we have as as people of color, as underrepresented people, as marginalized people, as low income, whatever descriptor you want to throw in there, is valuable in this class. It's valuable to this lesson. It actually gives you a heads up, a step up to say, oh, I understand that now because I can contextualize it in my life. If we take away the history, right, if I can't teach students about early, like, computer scientists that are black and brown, if I can't explain that, well, we have solar panels because someone in Saudi Arabia realized I got a lot of sun and I need some power, then I can't start to engage those students in seeing themselves in that space. And so the first step is actually removed from me as a teacher, where I can say, no, look, there's a whole plethora of folks who have done this work before you. You're not alone. You have references like others have references. A computer science does, scientist doesn't look one way an engineer doesn't look one way. We take that out of the classroom and teachers at the lowest levels are gonna be struggling to get engagement and we're gonna see that trickle into high school, we're gonna see that trickle into the UC and higher education, and it's, it's gonna be a cascade effect. Thank you.
0: Sam, or anything else to add?
1: Uh, I mean, it's, it's a little bit removed, but I think obviously like the K-12 pipeline and, and folks going to CS and uh, degrees ultimately do either become the founders of tomorrow, they become potentially investors, the operators, et cetera, of tomorrow. And obviously there's like, we're kind of playing in this, like to keep it real, it's like a very privileged space, right? Like venture capital is not serving most entrepreneurs, right? It's not small business loans. It's, it's a very narrow slice of the economy, of banking, however it has an outsized impact in terms of like these companies end up defining society, right? Everybody here's phone is is led by, backed by a venture-backed company, right? And so like the the impact that this early stage kind of like early learning K through 12 college has on the broader ecosystem is massive and I think, you know, we're... Although we're kind of still playing at the margins to a degree, we have, we, it is felt, right? CRT and like access to real education in Florida and Texas impacts the broader ecosystem. And so I think it's, it's important to have these conversations be held together.
0: Great, thank you. So now shifting into um, kind of the next level of this pipeline, um, Kenan. So we've proposed solutions for broadening participation with traditional post-secondary pathways and also alternative pathways, but we're still seeing black students who've been failed by both types of institutions. So what is the paradigm shift that's required in these post-secondary paths to hold both the institutions as well as the individuals accountable to make a change?
2: Thank you. I actually really love this question. Um, and I'll start with where, where we left off with your data, right? And for the time that we worked, and I, I tell you guys, when the report came out, yeah. it, it hit hard. Because for a decade, we literally have been on the front lines, you in the policy space, us on the research space, really trying to understand what what, what it takes to, to help students with the mentality shift. right? So when we don't see the results, we're like, ah, that's a decade of work, OK. Regroup, rethink, right? Um, Don't get married to the solutions that we've already put in place. Be married to the problem and solving the problem. So I think in my line of work now, I get to see at Bitwise the power of collaboration, right? And the power of scrapping the old pipeline and developing a new, robust pipeline, a bigger and broader pipeline that has more inlets and more outlets and not just one straight funnel from a computer science degree to an awesome job in tech, Right, that is the current pipeline. It has been failing. It failed our students in West Oakland, and I didn't find out until I followed them all the way through to high school. So for, for my journey, I started in the classroom, then I worked at a district level to understand what the barriers were for high school students because I had been basically selling wolf tickets to middle school students for years. If you learn this, you can get a job. What I never realized was that at West Oakland Middle, we don't have algebra. If you don't have algebra in eighth grade, you're not on track for calculus in high school. If you're not on track for calculus in high school, all of our UCs are off limits to you. Any other private institutions, you're not going to a computer science degree. I don't care if you're like one of my favorite students who graduated valedictorian at McClyman's and is out at UC Berkeley. She still can't get in Mm -hmm. to the computer science program because of the amount of math classes she has to take to catch up. So I say all this because it takes collaboration, right? And it takes understanding that if the four-year degree pipeline is dead, let's just cement it, call it what it is, build this new pipeline in collaboration with our community colleges. So places like Laney in Oakland are offering free tuition right now. That is dropping the barrier that boot camps have had before where it costs $10,000 to enter and graduate without a job opportunity. We're now saying at Bitwise, let's form together with our community colleges. And we have a wonderful example with Calbright that is putting a lot of other institutions in the town, Oakland, on notice that they can do it too. Where we're saying, let's align our curriculum. So students that are learning in your, your Salesforce platform or in your HTML and web design, in your XR platforms, as they get closer to their certificate, are they now eligible for what I feel is the the real magic sauce at Bitwise, which is our apprenticeship program. So we have a fully paid apprenticeship program. So instead of telling people you need to pay to get a job, we are saying we will pay you to learn so you can then have the skills to go apply for any job you want. Go change the face of the industry because now you have two years of experience. And so we're working in collaboration with community colleges and other organizations in our ecosystem to create that on-the-job platform. Like, we're saying, hey, if you've succeeded at Hidden Genius Project, then chances are you can apply for our apprenticeship program, and now you can be on a track to a job without having to go through the old pipeline of the four-year degree and the many barriers that that now has presented in front of you dating back to when you were 12. Like, that's totally unfair to keep somebody from a computer science job because their school didn't offer them algebra at 12.
0: Mm Can I ask a follow-up to that? Of course. So let's say we have these different alternative pathways. Is there then a next level of gatekeeping when they then go out into interviewing at tech companies and saying, well, you didn't do the four-year degree, so you can be on this path, not this path?
2: So this is, this is absolutely true and 100% what, as an industry, we all need to come together around, which is understanding the job classification. Because I, I hear a lot of four-year degree junior engineers who are bored out of their minds. They're like, I did all this work, and now you have me in a junior role, and I'm not doing what I actually learned in school. We need corporations to understand that that junior role actually doesn't require a four-year degree anymore. Maybe your next tier role does, but that junior level role needs to be open to folks from alternative pathways, whether that be your own partnerships with places like The Last Mile that goes into prisons and teaches folks while they are incarcerated, just like wrap your head around that, teaches folks how to do code on a computer while they're incarcerated. Slack has a program with them. Reddit has a program with them, right? They have to start thinking outside the box of what that initial entry level position really is. And I I, I open the floor up to anybody in the industry to come and talk to Bitwise about it because we're not shy with our model at all. We are offering it to everyone to say, we've done it, we've been successful for 10 years, you also should do this.
0: And Samer, um, similar question to you, is there a space for alternative pathways to get into venture?
1: I I think so, 100%. I mean, honestly, venture is, is an interesting space where I think they have these like prerequisites similar to a lot of places in in, in just like tech and just finance across the board that actually aren't that relevant, right? So like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, those statistics about the IVs, you know, you have all these people spinning out of the IVs, coming with liberal arts degrees, with finance, with biomedical engineering degrees, and then our early stage um, investors just diving into Discord channels, right, into like Reddit threads and having... 30 conversations a week with different founders, understanding and building opinions of that. Like that's not necessarily taught to you in school. That's just like a, a high level curiosity and willingness to dive in and learn as much as possible and then use that to frame a new kind of like framework of, of, of how you're breaking down information, right? Like I think it's I, I think there is a massive opportunity for it. Is the industry ready for it? I don't think so. I mean, like I have a master's in public policy from UT, right? And let me tell you how many times I've used that master's in public policy. <laughs> but I can tell you how much debt I'm paying off. But like, um, I, I think what it, those, these institutions, what they do is they give you check marks, right? and they validate you. And they allow you to get into rooms and have conversations with people to take you a little bit more seriously. And unfortunately, the industry is still running off that um, I'm seeing some more tailwinds, some big tech companies saying you know they're they're willing to and they will hire folks with different kinds of backgrounds and they'll just kinda of, if you pass the test, you pass the test to get in. Similarly in venture I've I've worked with and helped a lot of folks break in that aren't coming from traditional like you know, investment banking, management, consulting or like product in the startup roles to break in. So I'm seeing that slowly shift, but it's still more the exception to the rule than the rule. And so what I would like to see is much more of that momentum. And I think what ends up proving it is um, people doing it, right? Those people doing it and then doing incredible at their jobs, getting promoted, launching their own funds, and then becoming that example, that then people then look back and say, well, she didn't, right? And look at what she's done, so maybe I can actually open up my aperture a little bit as well. But I I think the industry has still a ways to go there.
0: Okay, um, so Allison, I'm gonna kick it back to you. Um, so we've kind of been, you know, in for decades now pushing um, black employees into tech. We get them into tech. And there's the question of, of course, recruitment, but then how do you retain those same folks where we're uh, providing safe spaces for them to thrive? Um, so in the past few years, we've seen failure of major tech companies. We've seen a lot in the news about uh, folks like Timnit Gebru, who essentially got gaslit out of um, Google. And then um, the data that came out recently saying that 75% of chief diversity officers are, with, um, are white. And so with all of this, how, what will it take for tech to do more than upholding the status quo where yes we've gotten them in um, and we've successfully recruited black employees but then they are just funneling back out.
3: I think it's a really a really important question and um something that's kind of hidden in in some of the data about how we haven't seen any any meaningful progress. That doesn't mean that companies aren't hiring more black employees. Um, The the hidden data piece is actually how many black employees are leaving those companies. So it's a revolving door if the companies don't have comprehensive diversity, equity, and inclusion plans and have made a true commitment to supporting their employees as opposed to a checkbox of, like, we've got to increase our black representation by one percentage point because the reporters are going to ask me when my... Um, when my state of diversity report is due. So um, there are a couple points. One, uh, we put out a report, um, how many years ago, eight years ago now, uh, called the Tech Leaver Study. I'm looking at Frida, one of, one of our um, authors here, um, around the the factors that cause employees of color to leave tech jobs. And obviously it was like all of the stuff that we know that we've seen play out in the public sphere. Um, but again, that was 2017, and we still haven't seen uh, much progress on addressing some of those challenges. Um, so I think y- y- the question was like, what will it take for um, companies to make that true commitment? I think there are a whole s- host of recommendations that we like outline in the report. but. At the most like core fundamental stage is like what is the commitment from the C-suite? What is the commitment from the CEO to actually inc- increasing representation and retention of their black employees? Um, how many of y'all remember all of the like commitments that happened right after George Floyd was murdered? There was like statement after statement after statement after statement, uh, and yet I think some of the most recent data is actually. Black employees, Latinx employees, and women are most likely to have been laid off in this latest round. So um, there is a great deal of, I think, hypocrisy in the statements around our commitment to actually increasing black representation in the sector. So I would say commitment from the top. And that includes everything from practices, policies, um, tying employee compensation and uh, uh, leadership compensation to black representation. I think that's the level of commitment that's needed as opposed to just like a, a statement on the website saying we're committed to the black community.
2: I'm gonna, I'm gonna add a little something uh, that I've seen recently and it's in a lot of our like, capital, caper capital partners. It's doing this model in cohort. So if you're going to add a bunch of people, right, and you know that they are of an underrepresented group within your own org, don't add them as a one-off. I've been a one-off. I'm sure many of us have been a one-off. That's not going to make me feel that welcome or remove some of the imposter syndrome that I probably came in with and other trauma that I've also come in with. What I've seen, and, and Bitwise does a good job of this, is when we have cohorts, I'll shout out Airbnb as well with their programs. They, they also have a good job of bringing in multiple, 10 to 12 people at a time that represent this group that you're trying to move the number on, You know, validate your statements, do as you say, all these things that you're working with. Bring in multiples so that they don't—they have a community already as you walk in the door. I already know I got 12 people. We've been through this program together. We know each other. We done talked. We done built. And now I feel safe to have this group radiate out, right? This group might just be the source of your DEI or your, your ERG, right? They may be the leaders of your ERG because they're coming in together saying, here's what we've noticed and here's what we think you need to adjust to make it more comfortable for all of us. And when you can say all of us, you feel a lot more comfortable and then you're raising your hand being like, hey, it's it's me over here and I could use, right, so. I would add just, I,
1: I agree 100% with both of y'all. I, I think the only, the two things that I would add is one point to make is just around accountability and tracking. You, you kind of tr- uh, alluded to just the layoffs and, and how that's affected BIPOC and women within these firms, companies, et cetera, and I think, having much more public acknowledgement, right, of the state of diversity within these organizations is key. I think the second point is also around, uh, at BlackVC, we very rarely make the argument that like, you should hire black or fund black fund managers because it's the right thing to do, because like, Mm -hmm. that's great until, your main bank collapses and then you're gonna shore back up to like your safe harbors and those might not be BIPOC or women-led, right? And so like what we try to always make the argument of like, this is financially the right decision to make, right? Like you're trying to expand into this population. Well, you should have people from that population that are available, right? That are within your organization that can kind of connect to recruit, sell, raise from, deploy to, et cetera. And so what we try to always do is kind of make that like argument at a macro level that like, Fundamentally, you are leaving alpha in returns and um, outcomes on the table by being so homogeneous, and and so I think for us, it's it's uh, in addition to y'all, it's it's a lot of it is also kind of anchoring back into, this is just good business. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Can I add one more thing? Mm-hmm.
3: One more thing I thought of as you both were talking was, um, like, what's the value proposition to black employees? So when you mentioned Timnit Gebru, I was thinking of you know. On the one hand, what we're told is that these tech jobs offer these great salaries and great perks, right? But on the other hand, are we always driven by uh, economics, or are we also driven by values and philosophy? So, like, if we're not aligned with what the company's doing, like, who wants to work at Facebook? If Facebook is, like, has a, an outside... Sorry, if there's any face, meta. If it has, like, an outsized negative impact on our own community, do I want to work there just to collect this paycheck? And I think that's something that the industry is going to have to reckon with, and that's, I think, a really promising opportunity for investing in black entrepreneurs, investing in values-aligned businesses and startups um, to kind of, you know, create a new ecosystem as opposed to the old model of of these large tech companies that might not be aligned with our values.
0: Okay, I'm going to be mindful of time, so I am going to skip right over to the last question, which is, um, if you had to bet all your money on one call to action, what would it be and why? Who wants to start?
2: I think about it first. I did. Okay. I'll start. I'll start. I'll start. <laughs> I'll set it off. Um, I did. I did. To to just preface, I had an answer to this. And now
3: you're changing it. And now then I came to it. South
2: by Southwest, and I went to the Tulsa house. And so, anybody who was at the Tulsa house, you might understand what I'm feeling exactly. Um, the one thing that I I really wanna oh yeah there we go that's AI y'all come on did I say anything like Siri at all like really let's talk about it but <laughs> Not even close. Um, what, Tulsa? No. Okay. Just making sure we ain't being followed. But what I left that those, those sessions with was this idea of collaboration over competition. Uh, and if I could leave everybody with one thing, it's that if we look at ourselves as a nation within a nation, as enough, we have enough, we are enough, we've been enough, we will drop the scarcity mindset and we will start leaning into each other and our networks and the brilliant people next to us and asking the question of how can I help you, how can you help me, and how can we move all this forward? So collaboration over competition, we are enough. We have enough, and we've been enough.
3: How am I supposed to follow that? Exactly, should have gone last. last.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Tulsa House.
3: Okay, you gotta go next. (laughs)
2: All right, so um,
1: I'll go a different route, um, and, and I think we're, one thing we're focused a lot about at BlackVC right now is the Black funder ecosystem, fund manager ecosystem, specifically limited partners, right? So I think that there's ultimately, in the venture capital space, LPs have some of the most influence over general partners, where they're backing, how they're hiring, et cetera, not specifics, but they set the tone. And you know, there's a lot of history from university endowments to public pension funds, which are arguably some of the largest concentrations of black wealth that is not going to black founders or black fund managers. I think there's an opportunity to really move the needle, even if it's marginal, um, to exponentially increase the amount of capital going to just BIPOC uh, fund managers in general, which does trickle down to the entrepreneurial community. So my call to action would be LPs, in whichever capacity you are, you also have an obligation uh, to play and shout out to the, to the Kapoor's okay. for the, the massive uh, influence and impact they all have had in the ecosystem. And I think it's kind of setting the tone for a lot of the other spaces. And so one thing that we're focused on a lot is how do we start to shift the needle on the LP side of the table to back more diverse uh, uh, fund managers.
3: So my answer is actually gonna be similar to yours. Um, for those who know me know how passionate I am about computer science education, um, I can talk all day about it. However, if I had to make one bet, I would come back to where you just left off and where we were talking about creating a new ecosystem. So our partners at Kapor Capital, um, Brian Dixon and Ulili On- On- Novak puri just raised $126 million. They're both black, so one of the largest black-led firms. But that would not have happened without Mitch and Frida Kapor passing the torch along and mentoring and supporting all of the black fund managers in the space and and black entrepreneurs. So I think this is a great opportunity. You think of $126 million that they have to deploy in new companies, in new ideas, in new entrepreneurs that don't have to have gone to the Ivy Leagues or Stanford. Um, Go Bears, by the way. Um, And so I think we have an opportunity to create a new ecosystem. We also spend a lot of time talking on the policy side about how do we protect our communities from the harms of technology if we can also channel some of that energy into the creation of new products, I think that also um, could provide a new opportunity for us. Right. Sonia, did you have an answer?
0: Oh yes. <laughs> um, just put you all in charge of changing the <laughs> ecosystem. Um, I mean, I, th- I think you know you all come at it from very different spaces and i think that what is very um prominent is that there are major issues that need to be addressed at each of the spaces that you all work in um and also take it from a truly ecosystem perspective it's not like if you change the individual skill level that is what's the magic ticket to getting everyone um Uh, an equitable space in the industry, and I think that that is something that um, the Kapor Center has been kind of leaning into more and more, which is how do we get community involved, how do we get institutions involved, how do we get industry involved, but also how do we get policy involved to really shift that landscape. so that is um, just another uh, opportunity for collective impact. Um, I know Kenan, you've been talking about that as well, so. Um, and so here, I just want to uh, take an opportunity to open it up for audience questions. And um, for those who have questions, if you can go to the mic, that would be wonderful.
2: I want to quickly shout out all my masters of urban planning folks who don't use their urban policy. Like, I put my hand up there, too.
0: Wow. <laughs>
6: Hi, everybody. Uh, my name's Amaya Webster. I'm based in San Francisco. I work for a nonprofit tech company um, doing child helpline crisis support and uh, climate tech, which, awesome! if anybody's looking for jobs in tech, nonprofit is the way to go. Decent salary, more flexible, just saying.
4: Um,
6: I have a ton of questions, I realize It's not just me in the room, so maybe I can chat with each of you afterwards. Um, But I think one of my biggest questions is we're pretty dedicated to diversity and inclusion. And we're pretty dedicated to not just saying that. Um, But we struggle to actually get applicants. And so I was wondering if there was any advice you could give. Like, we have adjusted our job description. Um, to take out like, labels and how long you need to be doing things and certain degrees. Um, but if there's any other advice you would have over language to use, we've also tried to do more like diversity and inclusion job boards. Um, but if there are any that you would recommend, um, because like, like you said, it's easy to put it on your website, it's easy to say you do it, um, it's even easy to want to do it, um, but actually doing it Um, it was hard, it turns out. And now that I'm looking at the numbers, I think I have a better understanding of why. Yeah, Yeah. so anyways, I'm rambling, (laughs) but thank you.
2: I have a a suggestion of a place where you can go, Uh, a wonderful group, Opportunity at Work. They have what is called the STARS program. Uh, These are folks that are vetted by them, supported by them with wraparound services, and they're given the opportunity to learn. They go through programs like ours, so they're very highly qualified, and they have a whole board. I think it's called like StellarWorks or something of that nature. It's through Opportunity at Work. You can post there as an employer looking and you can also search their job board for applicants. And I'm not being afraid of taking notes on my phone. I appreciate (laughs) it. (laughs)
5: Thank Um, you so much. So my name is Dara Presley. I'm the director of UX at ICF. And I want to say that like there's two comments. So the first one is that we actually don't need to just hire young people. We actually need to get leadership positions. Mm-hmm. So, like, since I've had my department, I now have a department of forty. It is the most diverse group in the in our org um, that I've seen. Um, I intentionally try to hire a lot of different faces, different shapes of bodies, etc. Um, but the second is also because we work my group works mostly in the federal space. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people don't know is that for a lot of federal contracts, they want small minority business owners. Mm-hmm. And usually, they can't do the work, so that's when we come in as a sub to help get the work done. But if you have a small minority business and get hooked up with the government, it's a really good way to kind of just in- increase your you know, bandwidth out there in the world. So I just wanted to bring up that point. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the comment about
3: leadership too. I know we didn't explicitly touch on that, and we have a bunch of data in the report about again the lack of representation at leadership levels. So That's a really important point. Thank you for Can suggesting that. To I just wanted to take
7: that. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Hello, thank you all so much for the great panel. Um, my name is Alvin Irby. I run a literacy nonprofit called Barbershop Books, um, and we create child-friendly reading spaces in black barbershops around the country, but. When the barbershops closed, we developed a reading identity exploration and assessment program that we've been testing and developing over the last three years. And now we're at a place where we're actually ready to build an actual ad tech product based on the research and you know, user feedback that we receive, but bringing an ad tech product to market. And managing a nonprofit program are kind of very kind of different skill sets and experiences. And so, you know, I want to make sure as we work to develop this tool that we give it not only the attention, but also the access to capital that it will need to thrive in the market. And so any advice you have for a nonprofit that's considering creating some type of separate profit for profit vehicle or even just places to consider for talent. As you you know, as we look to develop this tool, uh, I'd love you know any insights about that. Thank you. Yeah, I can Thank give you. A shot. Um,
1: so, in in turn, the question is kind of around uh, building out this like, product, potentially for profit that you may raise for uh, within the nonprofit kind of structure, and like how to allocate your resources across the two, or
3: and access to capital.
1: And access yeah. to capital. Okay, I can answer on the the access to capital side. I think in terms of. Um, well, one, if you're considering the venture kind of pipeline, because there's a lot of different opportunities for you, right? Um, I think pre-seed funding too, pre-seed and seed stage funding has not necessarily dried up even in this current market climate. I've actually seen a lot of pre-seed and seed deals continue to happen. So there's capital available and there's momentum happening. I think um, as BlackVC is a nonprofit, right? So we do, I do a lot of nonprofit fundraising a lot of initiatives, programs, even potentially products that do have a, a uh, impact lens, potentially also have better routes to raise in the nonprofit space. And so I wouldn't necessarily kind of block out that there's opportunity to raise grants from foundations, from family offices, from other organizations that are interested, even to like help you set a floor, test this product, um, get some runway, uh, and get some backing to build on it, and then you know, you may reach a level of viability where this is venture scalable and you do want to go get, you know, venture backing. Um, but I, I would say I would say that you don't necessarily have to separate the, the two at the jump because it seems like there's a lot of alignment between them at the jump right now. Thank you. Great. Hi everyone.
8: Uh, thank you for this panel today. Uh, my name is Brian. Uh, I'm a portfolio manager by trade, managing both institutional and private client money, more so institutional now. Um, so my question is first, like as a portfolio manager, you see that there's a lot of red tape to get to that kind of black fund manager, um, uh, I guess, allocation for institutions, right? We have to go through a, a big due diligence process. Usually it's because of, oh, you don't have the tenure or you don't have the background or you don't have the team or whatever else it may be. Um, so. Accompanying that from a VC standpoint, but also from a tech standpoint, how can we expose um, the people who want to get into VC or tech? Because I'm a a big proponent of exposure leads to expansion. Um, And so how can we uh, give more exposure to our young adults who are still getting into these fields? How can we actually empower those people? I'm only 26 myself, so I got a lot of work to do. Um, So I'm just trying to be another conduit in the system. Thank you.
3: I just have one suggestion, Nate's gonna hate me for calling him out. Um, so at uh, K4 Center, we have a summer fellows program and this is just, I, sh- I shouldn't say just, it's a program this summer. I think we're looking to um, support 25 fellows who are coming from a wide variety of different backgrounds and get exposure to the space through like a summer internship. Um, uh, the unfortunate thing is that we are one of very few that has those kind of opportunities. So I think that's a great opportunity for the, the sector to really expand on um, those types of like, training opportunities.
1: I think my response is actually a little bit off. But you mentioned <laughs> that you're um Uh, at an institution kind of also allocating capital. And and a lot of institutions don't have the capacity to be able to back funds that are sub a certain amount. There's restrictions on what percentage of the fund you can have. And that's a lot of the reason that we hear from folks. I know that's built into a lot of the investment policies. I know a lot of institutions, um, not a lot, but a a small percentage of them have started to build out and approach kind of fund of funds where they're actually able to take the position that they can and get exposure to a lot of different funds. And so I think you have, you personally also have an interesting position to play in the ecosystem. Um, and at the very minimum, you just having awareness of the space and being able to have those conversations internally, because they can have a broader impact that might not be felt immediately, but slowly, you know, over a few years, you know, you might start to see that institution start to shift, so.
2: You both added something that I kind of want to shout out to the, the brother who had the question before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's this idea that, remember, you spoke about it in your report, the mentorship, uh, the, the need for it, and the the benefit of, mm-hmm. check out places like 4.0 out of New Orleans. They, I said it like that for a reason. <laughs> but check out 4.0 out of New Orleans because they will provide you with mentorship for a year to really help you take that next step. Also, check out check out Camelback. Are they still out of Oakland? Do they still claim Oakland Camelback? Check out Camelback. I, I applied for them a million times. I can tell you how it works.
4: <laughs> hey, y'all. I just want to say... Thank you. Um, one, so my journey is a little bit different. So I used to be a biology teacher. So I understand the pedagogy and the data. Um, and I used to work in tech. So like we're a huge tech company. So I transitioned from teaching to tech. And I understand the layoffs, y'all, because they got me. OK. <laughs> but um, I understand it from both sides. To My students will be entering college next year, um, and so I think I also just, I'm really rooted in community and collaboration because my students, when they see tech, they think of Ms. Jenkins, mm-hmm. because I was the, okay, y'all, I, I don't work in teaching anymore, I'm going to tech, y'all, and I literally <laughs> interviewed one of my students' moms, and so I think I just need advice on like how can I pour into, Community now entering in this space. I'm viewing it as like a new chapter, and I'm only 24 too, and I have my master's in teaching. So I understand like all of it and thinking about going into the adjunct space, like in this transition part, but I also understand some of my students, they're not going to university, they're going to community college. And coming from like a HBCU, coming from Prairie View, seeing like these opportunities don't come here, not because that, oh, we don't know what it is, it's because, like, they're not coming. Mm -hmm. And so how, like, using all the knowledge that I got from working in a Fortune 100 company, having those opportunities, having the knowledge of what, like, the hiring process looks like, having the knowledge of, like, what the hiring manager's names are, what the diversity, managers and leaders names are and like i'm not just gonna keep that knowledge for myself i know it's so much more bigger than me it's for my students like they will be in the same places that i am in and so i think i just need a little guidance
2: (laughs) i'm like you're a star um your your heart and your energy is in the right place You already are a pillar of your community based on those young people seeing you as such. Mm -hmm. Their families probably also see you as such. So don't lose sight of the power you already have, the impact you've already created. And now it's time for you to just focus in on what that avenue looks like, where you think you might be able to, to, what you might be able to create, whether that be a nonprofit, a school, a program. I think you should just go on a speaking tour. I'm gonna be a honey with you. (laughs) <laughs> so I think I think the, the sky's the limit. You're tw- you said you're 24, so you've got time. Like I said to my panelists earlier, don't get focused on the problem and this one solution. Get focused on solving the problem, and I think you'll find a space that opens up for you that you just naturally fit in. Brilliant. <laughs>
6: we probably
0: have uh, time for one more question. Maybe we can take then-
9: Hi, my name is Miranda. Thank you, everyone, for all of your advice. Um, I'm the founder of a company where we create no-code and low-code app development for creators. So I operate in the creator economy. And what I've noticed is that there's a shift from creators who've amassed an audience to them becoming founders. But their leap into being founders is very rocky because they don't have that leadership capacity, really trying to figure out how to do infrastructure, so that's what my company helps to do. I saw that you all mention how a lot of what you're looking at the pipeline as is like who's getting CX degrees, but I'm wondering as a part of that ecosystem for black tech is the non-technical roles, mm-hmm. it's the product uh, managers, it's the, the CX people, customer success, and so my question is how are we cultivating digital literacy? Especially, we're in this field of like the the Mm -hmm. time of AI, and it's really about the art of prompting, not necessarily having those technical skills. So that's my big concern. I'm like, yo, I don't want for us, for there to be even bigger racial disparity between our ability to create enterprises, and specifically for me, for creators, like especially black folks, just creative and also innovators. But if they don't have that technical knowledge, how do we the gap between essentially the black intelligentsia and the black creatives. Mm-hmm. So my, my question, I know it's a bit much, but I would really love to get you all's thoughts on how are we cultivating that digital literacy for our kids, as well as for the adults, because that can be a group that gets left behind as these technical innovations happen. So let me know your thoughts. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah <I> <laughs> I just, I'm just like, as I sit here and listen to you, you all, I'm, I'm so stoked for where we're going. Those numbers are bound to change. Uh, we once again, like, I think we have the power in the room. I think you, 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 what we need to do is start to branch out and reach out to each other. So as you're talking about that, I'm thinking, well, Bitwise has, uh, occasionally we do non-technical apprenticeships. Okay, so that's one avenue that folks can get into. But then there's that overlap you spoke of, of like, how do we get creatives to then also harness that, that buying power? And I think of like, can I say spill out loud? Is that possible? Oh no! I think if there's there's spaces where that is being created, yes. where folks can not only, um, you know, you think of the TikTok paradigm. I created this dance, and everyone else is getting famous for it. But how do we hold it so that I created this dance, and now I created a movement, I created a dance studio, I created all these things based on my creativity? I think there are spaces that are being um, built for just that level of ownership. And then you got to, you got, we have to figure out the mentorship. I mean, I'm, I'm, not gonna underestimate what an organic, finding an organic mentor, someone that you feel comfortable speaking with, that you feel comfortable opening up with, and that does, reciprocates that vulnerability with you, so that you can all really form a bond that allows everyone to grow further. I think I, I am just like floored by you all. So reach out.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you, you said all. 24 and 26. Are you hitting? Exactly. Really, I'm like, I'm 105. <laughs> for coming to the
0: panel today. We are over time right now, but again, if you have questions or comments for our panelists, um, please feel free Sonya. to talk to them. Um, <laughs> and also, a plug right now, we have a book that's coming out that Mitch and Frida Kabor have just uh, put out, Closing the Equity Gap, and it is available for free order already
1: launched today, tomorrow. So. tomorrow
2: and there's a chapter on bitwise <laughs> um,
0: thank you all for
1: coming and thank you to our panelists thank you